Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. A recently published paper called In Defense of Merit in Science is raising the alarm about an ongoing trend in major scientific institutions. Organizations such as university departments, professional societies, and academic journals are adopting policies based on a new ideology, an ideology that this paper calls critical social justice. You may have also heard other names for it, like wokeism or critical race theory. Today, we want to talk about this ideology and what it means that it's starting to shape scientific institutions. How can we expect it to affect the field if its prominence continues to grow? We'll also talk about how a group of scientists criticized this ideology in the paper that I just mentioned, which got attention in uh, mainstream outlets like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. What do we think that these scientists got right? And what are the problems with this paper? And we'll go into what it will take for scientists and others to more effectively push back against the rise of critical social justice ideology. I'm Sam Weaver. I'm a junior fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. And with me today to talk about this is Mike Mazza, associate fellow at ARI. Good morning, Mike. Hi, Sam. So I think it'd be a good place to start by talking about uh, an angle that's come up in the way that this paper has been covered in the more uh, mainstream press, like in the New York Times. Uh, because something that's come up uh, around this paper is that, okay, so it's this, this paper authored by a bunch of scientists. It ends up getting published in something called the Journal of Controversial Ideas. After having been rejected by a, apparently a few different uh, more mainstream journals in the sciences. And at the end of the, the paper, there's this sort of postscript where the, the authors are presenting it as though uh, these mainstream scientific journals rejected the paper because they disagree with its conclusions. They didn't want ideas like this being published. And so there's sort of, in, in the coverage of this, there's a, a major feature has been talking about this kind of quote unquote cancel culture, cancel culture angle around this uh, merit in science paper. And uh, Mike, I'm curious what you think about the validity of, of that idea. Well, so Sam and I both read the paper a couple of times in preparation for the podcast, and we looked at some of the commentary around it. The paper and its, at least some of its authors are claiming that it was, so they're essentially what they are doing is, um, they sent the paper to something called the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which is a sort of publication put out that, by the National Academy of Sciences, and that it's in part in um, in response to some um, uh, statement. I don't know exactly how to describe it. Some perspectives they say put out by by the National Academy of Sciences. For example, the uh, NAS has a 360 page um, document on the uh, the um, advancing anti-racism, diversity, equity, inclusion in STEM organizations. So they kind of mention and quote from this at the end of their of their defensive merit article. So they claim they were rejected by the proceedings, and I find that claim like so i i assume they were rejected by the by the p pnas as they say but that that says anything like that this is cancel culture or that um they're 
being targeted for ideology. I mean, I looked at the past couple issues of DNAS going back maybe about two years, and they don't publish things like this as articles. Um, maybe this could be some kind of editorial, but it's 26 pages. So, and I mean, PNAS has apparently a 15% acceptance rate. So it's not like that being rejected from it, you know, means anything that it's that that's a significant data point that they're rejected from a scientific magazine. And this is not science. This is more like a philosophy paper. Um, that's unsurprising. Uh, there's also an issue that I think we'll talk about more is I, I mean, to just state my opinion, I don't think this is a very good paper, so I don't, I wouldn't think it should be published in a journal like that. So it doesn't surprise me that it got uh, rejected. And another thing they are saying is they got rejected. They name this one and say they reject were rejected from several other places. But according to someone who, uh, and according to a uh, article in Prospect Magazine by someone who interviewed one of the authors, what they did, what the authors did was ask editors of other journals whether they'd be interested in the article and the editors declined, which is not a rejection. That's not the same process as submitting for review and then being rejected. So there's a there's a lot of, I think, dissembling about what exactly went wrong in the in the or what exactly um, uh, went wrong isn't the right word. What exactly happened in their attempt to publish this? And then it was published in the Journal of Controversial Ideas, which is a journal that's sole purpose is to publish things that seemingly can't be published anywhere else for for content, for, like uh, goes against some prevailing orthodoxy. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a legitimate cancel culture angle here. Yeah, I, I agree. We can't really draw any conclusions from what is public knowledge about why this wasn't published in these other places and how this whole process went 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 down. Um, I, one other thing you mentioned, Mike, and I think we'll, we'll get into this more as we get into some of the more specific points is we have criticisms of this paper. You said you don't think it's a very good paper. I'm, I'm inclined at least to say there are some major flaws with it uh, that we'll get into more specifically later. But at this point, I, I just want to raise the issue of if we think this is not not the greatest paper, why are we talking about it? Why are we bringing it up? And I think yeah. uh, I think that's because it's pointing to a real issue and an issue that's really important that has to do with the major institutions of science, with the ideas that uh, that kind of dominate those institutions and and guide the policies around hiring and and publication and all sorts of things in in the world of science who who gets jobs who gets published what uh, come you know comes to a place of of prominence in the scientific world and I think they're pointing to some real uh, some real issues some really concerning uh, things that are coming out of this what they call critical social justice ideology uh, so it's it's worth talking about the things that they point out and the and the possibility of the, how those things can affect science. Um, and also, I think that the fact that some of the things that we think are not so good about this paper uh, show showcase areas where uh, scientists don't have the the resources or the the arguments that they need to really effectively combat these ideas, or where some of the the critics of of these critical social justice ideas aren't really uh, 
doing very well in their criticism. And so it's also worth talking about it from that perspective of how can you actually be more effective as a critic in those areas. Right. So there's there what's um, good about this paper is that it's pointing to a real a real a real thing that deserves a reaction. It's just that this is not the I don't think this is the um, right approach to take in in, in reacting to to, to, I mean, there's a there there. There's something to write a paper like this about, um, but I don't think this is the right way to do it. Yeah. So maybe we should start by getting into getting into the controversy here and, and what and what are the policies, what are the issues that are under discussion? Uh, so a good starting point is what what are the advocates of the uh, critical social justice, what this paper calls critical social justice policies, what are they actually advocating? What is the actual uh, uh, policies that they're advocating and, and why? What are their arguments? What are their reasons for putting forward these ideas? And then we can evaluate uh, whether we think that there's any merit to those or what the, what the problems are if we don't think that there are. Um, so I think a, a crucial issue, and Mike, maybe, maybe you'll have something to say about this, is, yeah. is this idea that uh, science is racist in some form. There's racism in science, and we need to fight back against it. Uh, this is something that I think really was talked about a lot, especially in 2020, with all the the racial controversies that were happening then, and has sort of continued continued since that time. Is this idea that like we need to fight against systemic racism in a field like science? Um, but I think that maybe a couple of different things there that we want to yeah. get clear on. Mike, did you have thoughts about those? Yeah, well, so the 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 paper's reacting to uh, a, a, a alleged claim that um, the way merit currently is uh, thought about in the sciences in is in some respect um, racist or uh, in, includes standards and practices that marginalize or further marginalize gr groups that have his <laughs> historically been marginalized. I mean, it's kind of compounds the historic marginalization. So um, <clears throat> they're, they're reacting to these claims and they're, uh, they're, uh, they're, what they're saying is that there's this ideology, this philosophy of science at play behind these claims. So, um, for example, uh, if you think that um, um, enshrining uh, Western standards of evidence into um, the journal, uh, the practices of uh, peer review in scientific journals is um, uh, pushing aside other legitimate ways of knowing, they'll say, um, like the lived experience as evidence, or another one is indigenous ways of knowing, um, then the standards of your journals are um, um, in, in, in encoding in them sort of a racialized conception of what good and bad uh, science is. And the, the article is trying to rebut this kind of Claim. And they're associating these kind of claims with critical social justice. They call it critical social justice epistemology, which they contrast with their um, epistemology. Um, so 
that's the basic um, basic issue. Now, why should we think that science as an institution and science as a practice is um, is in some way racist? Well, there's a kind of two pronged uh, uh, assault here. So. On the one hand, and I think the, the, the first thing I'll say is really what's driving the, the whole thing is there are ideological or philosophical reasons that people, these people think that science is or has to be racist. So they have a, a general view that um, claims to uh, claims to knowledge, claims to the kind of authority of science are or have been used as uh, ways to wield power over people certain prejudices were in the past seen as scientific, the old scientific racism and the racial hierarchies being an obvious one. Um, and they, there's the thought that, well, it's, 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 it's in the essence of claims to truth or knowledge that there's, a, there's a, at least an element of um, uh, the wielding of power over people. So who currently controls all the institutions and the authority of science well it's generally western white people so therefore there must be some kind of systemic um institutionalization of the the just the very uh um, power structures that they're that they're concerned about so science has to be in some way racist now the other prong is to um point to actual cases of racial practice and racial bias and um and to make the case that yeah look there's not these aren't just one-off cases these are um they give a give a, a feeling of there's some systematic product pro, um, problem so for example this is from a uh a uh the example i'm about to give is from an op uh let's say an editorial in science magazine which is criticizing the defensive science, uh, defensive merit paper. Um, the author says, more recently, pulse oximeters that measure blood oxygen levels were found to be ineffective for darker skin because they were initially developed for white patients. So you'll get a whole, like a whole battery of examples like this of either actual overt racism or like racial biases and prejudices coming into this, into the, into this, into the sciences. And from that angle, there's, yeah, look, there's a concern. We need to make sure we don't have these biases um, coming into scientific practice. So you get a kind of two-pronged assault. One is just to give examples of um, that, that are easy to accept of racism. And the other is like this ideology at work where it thinks there has to be systemic racism. Um, and the two kind of uh, get packaged together a lot of times. Yeah, I think there are, there are important distinctions that we have to make here. And so I hear a kind of on the one distinction you're making is between kind of, kind of saying we have this ideology that tells us that there's systemic racism in the West, or maybe that when there's an inequality of some sort, that means that there's systemic bias. And therefore we don't have to like seek evidence of discrimination or evidence of uh, some, some kind of, more subtle form of bias we just know kind of from our our worldview our, our yeah our, our priors tell us that there is and so we just know it versus actually having evidence for example that uh the, the pulse oximeter thing or 
uh, oh, there, like there's this one guy who's really prominent at this university and he's got some racial biases or something like that. So I think, I think that's one thing that we need to distinguish is, is having evidence versus just an ideology that says it's, it's there and we don't need evidence. Another issue I think that was coming up in what you were saying is um, there's this idea that scientific practices and thinking that science is good, uh, that, that there's sort of norms of science, evidence, objectivity, uh, experimental methods, and that this is, this is good, this is the right way to get knowledge in science. There's, there's this view that that is inherently racist, that there's something, mm -hmm. there's some kind of uh, racism inherent in saying that like experimental science using all the, the methodologies that have been developed mostly in the West is better than like tribal myth, that there's something racist about saying that. And I think we should view that very differently from claims that the institutions that practice science may have some sort of racial bias in them because there we're sort of, we're looking at like, uh, is somebody biased or are there procedures or technologies or questions that, ha that uh, have some sort of uh, injustice that is encoded in them versus a, a view that is, I think really radically anti-science or at least anti uh, kind of the scientific norms that, have existed since the scientific revolution and is saying like, there's something wrong with that. I think we should view those, those claims very differently. One is sort of a, a empirical question of, is there bias? Can we find evidence of it? Let's look for it. And another is like a really fundamental attack on science itself as a methodology of discovering the truth as like saying there's something wrong and racist about that. Yeah. One, one of the things that was, frustrating about reading the commentary over over this uh, over this controversy both the kind of the lefty tribe and the right wing tribe. so the as you could expect there's a certain people who jump all over this and agree with everything in the defensive merit paper and um, want to echo it and then the, as you also expect there's the people who read this and there's nothing to see here you know there's this is all imagined um, one of the things that's frustrated about this dialectic is that in different um in different but often not very different ways the two groups will kind of uh, uh package those two things together um so okay there's real evidence of certain historical and president and present biases in the institutional practice of science and okay well that's um that must be equivalent or in some way to the ideology that's kind of picking picking up on those facts and then to just throw throw them one or the other out with with, with the other so um, you get the kind of right wing reaction where there's there's nothing to see there's couldn't maybe there's some pulse oximeter weird thing occasionally but there's no systemic problem there's no larger problem and then the other side to take the view that well you're 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 opposed to um, my whole philosophical framework for thinking about race and equity. So that means you don't think that there's any racism anywhere ever. Um, and part of what's challenging about thinking through all this stuff is just about everybody talking about it falls into one of those two traps. So like one of the things we, you and I were doing in preparation was just 
following all the different citations and saying, seeing that like, no, that's not really what that cita that paper says. And um, you know, the, the in defense of merit paper uh, misquotes and misrepresents a lot of its sources, but then the commentary on the dis in defense of merit paper itself is misrepresenting um, the, the same literature. Uh, so this this kind of packaging of these two things, the facts on the ground and the ideolo ideological commentary on them, just makes it really hard to even even know what's factually true uh, a lot of times. Yeah, and I, I, it's certainly my view, at least, that uh, to actually find out the facts about some of these more claims about more subtle biases in scientific institutions, that it would take a lot of work to find out whether those claims are true or to what extent those claims are true, that it would, you'd have to really study uh, what's going on with there's what kind of, okay, there's a disparity here, but what are the factors involved in it? What do the hiring practices look like? What, like, what questions are being asked? What factors could be uh, pushing some people out of the field and not others? And, Almost nobody is putting in that work, and I'll, there's a lot of claiming either there's definitely a problem, there's definitely huge systemic racism because my ideology tells me there has to be, and there's some like sort of reflexive, no, there's no way there can't possibly be. And in e either case, there's not a lot of looking at the evidence or even looking for evidence of what, what kind of things would actually have to be involved in uh, substantiating a, a claim like that. Um, on the other hand, I think that maybe the more uh, or the more fundamental or at least more philosophical kind of question here is about the procedures of science and are the are the procedures of science legitimate or not? And what we're seeing from the critical social justice camp is that there are these ideas that really uh, seem to to strike at the roots of science as a legitimate method. Of knowledge and uh, questionable defense of that, I think from uh, yeah. from the critics of it. One of the things I think we need to be mindful of here is so there's um, this sort of claim that I think a lot of people are are familiar with now because it's been amplified by um, right wing skeptics of of this of this critical just social justice movement um objectivity is a white prejudice like there'll be a like the, you see these charts and it'll say like white supremacist ideas and then it'll say some some there's some other column with um you know multicultural ideas or something and you'll get on the white supremacist side it's like objectivity individualism uh need to cite dispassionate evidence these kind of these kind of um these kind of things and that's the the um that's what i think is is most concerning is that those um more radical ideas about uh about science in relation to um uh, say um um indigenous myths or sometimes called lived experience that there's a there's a group of people trying to establish those the 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 achievements of western science and put them like on a par with these um these essentially prejudices of uh of uh, indigenous groups or of um people's you know kind of anecdotal experience 
And um, what I think the in defense of merit papers good at pointing out is ways in which these more um, uh, radical uh, anti-science epistemologies are seeping into how scientific um, institutions, academic institutions, journals, um, now uh, um, um, professional associations are making statements which draw from this material. And it seems like we're at the stage in which when it comes to something that's put out, like for example, this, I mentioned the 360 page document on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the science in STEM um, by the National Academy of Sciences. What you see is the watered down version of the more radical ideas. So it's like 10 years ago, I think just about any of these scientific organizations would have scoffed at any, like even considering any of this, um, you know, knowledge is all a power game and um, objectivity is a Western prejudice. I would think they would have laughed at that. And for some of the older viewers might remember the science wars in the 90s. There was a similar assault. It was called postmodernism at the time, assault on the objectivity of science. Um, the Sokol affair, if, if, if viewers are familiar with that, where a, a physicist published a gibberish article in um, a postmodernist journal to discredit them. There's a similar episode about 30-ish years ago. And I mean, it seemed to, at the time to have been squashed dead by practicing scientists. They just had no patience. It had no sway on them. And now 30 years later, we see that professional organizations are putting out documents that have in, in, in at least um, broad outline, the same, the same kind of uh, epistemological um, 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 surrender to this idea that's, that science is not really any better than um, the alternative ways of knowing as they're, as they're called. Yeah, that's that's what's concerning. Now we're at the we're at the like I was saying we're at the phase in which this is kind of very watered down. So um, to just give a uh, an example of this from the National Academy of Sciences document that they put out, they have a section talking about um, the nature of evidence. It's called nature of evidence, multiple methods of gathering knowledge, and they talk about indigenous approach, indigenous approaches, oral and community traditions and interviews to capture lived experience. And the way they describe these different methods, they're very non-committal. There's um, traditional science, traditional um, indigenous peoples use models and higher order thinking, they say. What exactly does that mean? Now, if you go into the actual um, uh, writings of people who are advocating indigenous ways of knowing, it doesn't sound so innocent. It's like they're myths. And, and they're kind of superstitions and traditions. It's not like, um, it kind of said, well, maybe they have some um, models of the local uh, botany or something like that. Like, no, it's, it's, they're not talking about something like that. But then the conclusion the NAS uh, document draws from this is that oral history and other means of exploring the lived experience of scholars from historically and systemically minoritized groups in STEM offer valuable insights that supplements findings from both uh, from other kinds of research. These methods should be continued and expanded. So it's like a completely watered down, like they're citing this research into, into or this um, advocacy of indigenous methods of knowing, 
but all you get out of it is you don't get any of the more um, radical stuff about uh, taking superstitions and prejudices seriously the way you do like real empirical investigation. No, what you get is this, it sounds, yeah, who could argue with this? People have um, some uh, insights and they're a minoritized group. Like, why not listen to them, their insights? Like, you should listen to any good insight. doesn't matter where it comes from. Um, but the fact that they, they even need to address this, I think it, it indicates the kind of trajectory um, we're on. Yeah. I mean, one, one example that's worth looking at is the idea of decolonizing science, which is very much in vogue. There was a whole series of articles published by Nature, which is one of the, the top scientific journals, on how to decolonize science and what does decolonizing science look like. And what you notice when you actually look into the details of what they're arguing is that there's a lot of theoretical kind of abstract language that is really radical that says stuff like we need to uh, get rid of the hegemony of Western ideas about knowledge and about science. And we need to sort of elevate cultural traditions, folk knowledge, all these other alternative ways of knowing to be on an even plane with uh, Western science. And we need to kind of take, take, take Western science down a peg. And it, it kind of puts you in mind if you've read uh, Ayn Rand's novel, The Fountainhead of, of Ellsworth Toohey and his literary circle and his idea that if I put this guy, Ike the genius, who's this, this horrible playwright, if I put him on the same level as Ibsen, then that, that's enough. That takes down Ibsen mm -hmm. without having to ever openly attack Ibsen. I mean, that, that's what this theory brings to my mind when you read it. When you actually look at what they recommend in practice, it's very often a it is a kind of watered down version. It's like this idea, well, okay, we don't, we're not, we're not saying like get rid of Newton and Darwin and like, we're not saying any of that. We're just saying like, oh, well, you know, sometimes indigenous people discovered these plants that had medicinal properties and it turned out they were right. And we should talk about the history of that and, and these things. But I think one of the, the points that's worth making here is that when, and this is something Ayn Rand wrote about, when she wrote about compromise and what happens when you have people who have a, there's an ideal, a certain set of ideas, and some people are consistent advocates of the, the logical implications of those ideas. And some people moderate, water them down, aren't consistent. In the long run, the people who are consistently following their, their fundamental premises will win out. Uh, assuming you know nothing kind of radical changes in the situation and so that's something that uh, we should be concerned about even when people are adopting the more moderate forms of these ideas if people are saying decolonize science but really it only means like talk about this time when the, these people discovered a plant that had medicinal properties well but decolonize science if you look at what that what that term is actually taken to mean it means something really bad and and if you get a bunch of people saying, yes, decolonizing science is a good ideal and it gets accepted into the policies of major institutions, which it, it is in some cases that there's, um, and we should talk about some of the examples of, of where this is coming up, but we see stuff like scientific journals, university departments adopting these kind of, uh, or giving these kind of statements about their, their views on diversity that use a lot of the language of this critical social justice ideology or even requiring job candidates to write these diversity statements 
affirming these principles and, and using whether they affirm those principles as a, or those ideas as a determination as to whether or not they will get hired. Um, even if what people are actually talking about right now is the moderate watered down form of these ideas, if the fundamentals are accepted by major institutions, mm -hmm. it will continue moving in the direction of the more radical implications that, that fall out of those fundamentals, which, I mean, my view is would are totally antithetical to what science actually is as a rational objective practice. I mean, if you're going to say, if you're going to take the radical ideas and say that like uh, indigenous creation myths are on the same tier as Newton, like, like that's, that's totally anti-science. You don't, yeah, you don't have in the field. Yeah. Um, why don't we, I think we should talk about some of the um, proposed solutions that the critical social justice um advocates uh, uh have because i think those solutions are tied in with also some of the examples that that are objectionable so um you mentioned diversity equity and inclusion statements so um for uh, for anybody who's never applied for uh, admission to a graduate program or for an academic job uh, part of that application pro pro uh, process is you usually have to write something. It used to be you write something called like a personal statement or a research statement, what your interests are, what your research plans are, what your accomplishments to this. Now they, it's increasingly common to be required to write um, what is called a diversity, equity, and inclusion statement. Um, sometimes they're just called diversity statements. It go by slightly different names, but it's it's a it'll give the statements will require you to answer some sort of prompt like what will you do to promote x y and z where x y and z has something to do with um uh including including marginalized people from marginalized groups in your syllabus or in what you're teaching or how will you um uh make sure that the minority students in your class aren't you know don't feel marginalized further and that might now the syllabus part doesn't sound innocent. That the um, how you run your class, I think that's actually uh, a good thing to think about. But the objectionable part is this: um, what are you going to do to uh, design or teach teach or do research around promoting some very specific thing that is the um, the diversity and equity of the student body and of your of your research, and that's if it sounds like an innocent thing or a neutral thing is is not. Um, it's generally taken by people writing these statements, and I've you know I've had to write these statements as somebody who was once trying to pursue academic employment. Um, that you if so if you answered it by saying I'll promote the diversity of um, ideas and perspectives. That is the wrong answer. Um, the right answer is something about how you'll uh, make sure you have a certain uh, amount of, um, let's say, uh, black authors on your syllabus. Um, you can't say Thomas Sowell, though, so it's not really about having a certain number of, ra of like racial minorities on your syllabus. It's they want a certain number of 
things that advocate certain views on socially um, uh, uh, in vogue topics. So you are in a kind of tricky situation if you don't agree with that way of thinking. You could lie and just say a bunch of BS and get the job, but and then you're a liar. Um, or you could write what you'd actually do, which is, um, you know, in my syllabus, I have Ayn Rand and she's not a, uh, a white male, or, you know, she's an immigrant. Oh, that's that's not good for me in terms of getting a job. If you're uh, just a conservative, you could put like Thomas Sowell or some other black conservative, but that, that might not be too um, helpful either uh, because he's a known like bad guy. Um, so they're kind of these ideological litmus tests that people have to go through um, in order to be considered for employment. Um, so that's one of the uh, so-called solutions to these problems is you get just more people working in, in scientific and academic institutions who have a certain um, ideology. We, when Sam, when we were talking about this, we called these like performative solutions. So you say a certain statement, um, you, some, some classes, people will start with a land acknowledgement now. They'll say like this university is based on, uh, is located on indigenous lands that were, you know, they'll give the whole history. Um, there's training, diversity, equity, including inclusion training also that, um, uh, uh, that universities do that, um, scientific institutions might do. They might have their journal reviewed by DEI experts to, to fix it. So there's this kind of ideological performances or that, that people have to go through is one of the proposed, um, of the many proposed solutions. That one's the most concerning to me because it's, it, it kind of changes the, um, if that, if that becomes the norm, then we could imagine it in not too long, the people who will tend to get higher will tend to have more radical versions of the very things we were concerned about earlier. Um, so that one's very concerning. Yeah, I agree that of all these things, that's the one that worries me the most is this idea, like basically to get a job, you have to affirm certain ideas or so either you have to believe in them or you have to lie. Uh, so the, the better people the, are going to, most of them are going to say, I'm not going to lie on this thing. And so they're getting locked out. I mean, the attempt here is, is to create a sort of orthodoxy in these fields. Uh, only people who believe in these ideas are, are allowed uh, to, to get a job. And I mean, you can think about how that would look. Uh, part of this is that it's being put in terms of um, anti-racism things like that, which sounds like, okay, yeah, you need, a, you need to make sure that you don't hire a racist as your professor, like somebody who's going to yeah. grade, grade students down based on their, like, okay, so that gives it a, a veneer of plausibility. But you can think about it like if you, uh, if you had a university department that, that made its, uh, its applic job applicants sign that they were going to promote uh, morality and, and good ethics among their students. And then it turned out that the only the only answers they were looking for and the only answers they would accept would be ones that affirmed Christianity. 
as like, that's what I'm going to do to promote good morality is I'm going to, you know, teach them to. about, about the Bible. Yeah. Like you, we don't have like, to imagine that there's, there's plenty of colleges there. Right? Like, uh, right. there are a number of Catholic colleges I didn't apply to for jobs because you had to sign on to their uh, mission statement, which is just Jesuit. Catholic. Yeah. Um, and that connects. I think that connects into a, an issue that I think we have to bring up whenever we talk about this stuff, which is that, okay, yeah, there are like Catholic colleges or colleges based in various religious traditions. And I think we agree that that like, we would not want to work at such a college that we think it's, there's something really wrong about, you have to affirm this, these religious beliefs to be a professor, but those colleges are private colleges I mm. uh, for the most part there's issues with entanglement which we'll get into with with government funding but if we're talking about a really private christian college okay like that's an institution that can have policies that we disagree with uh promote an orthodoxy around ideas that we think are wrong and our answer to that is okay we'll we will not affiliate with that institution we'll affiliate with one that we that we agree with or at least can uh you know can in good conscience work for or we'll make our own if we need to but the thing is in the in the sort of mainstream universities and, and institutions is that these are this is a heavily government controlled sphere there's this sort of establishment in in academia that's consists of either institutions that are explicitly government-run institutions like public colleges and universities or institutions that are heavily influenced by government funding government grants i mean mike maybe you can speak more to the specifics of this but i my impression is that it's almost everyone in the sciences in the u.s today it relies on government grants um well, that creates Sure. At some point, every just about every person who's a scientist at some point has touched something very good. So just getting your PhD from a from university. I mean, university, even the uh, you know pri so called private universities, they're um, heavily subsidized through the student loan program or through uh, grants, research grants from the government. The, national academy um, um, uh, both in the humanities and in the sciences so i mean if you've got a phd unless you got it from one of the very small number of universities that has absolutely no government and you know, even though they don't even take student loan uh, subsidized student loans um you've been involved in some way with with the government and then i mean there's there's so there's um uh, research grants for for different kind of, especially um, medicine. Um, uh, re there's research grants, but there's also mm, there's also a kind of back and forth for a lot of people between academia and um, the pri so-called private sector, like they'll call it the private sector versus academia, um, and that is you know you do joint research with people or you're a professor for a while and then you start make a startup or you're in the private sector for a while then you get older and you kind of want to you know, like take a step back and you go into teaching 
So there's, it's very back and forth between the public and the private. And um, yeah, and the, the fact that these, uh, the thing that we're talking about these questions about diversity, equity and inclusion philosophy and critical social justice philosophy. Like if we had a completely privatized system of education and there was no state funding of science, I think my attitude would basically just like, you believe that stuff, go, go, go do your own thing, you'll fail and none of us will have to think about it. Um, but because it's, it's um, there's a uh, attempted institutional capture going on amongst this uh, critical social justice uh, crowd in the sciences, then it's it's something to be concerned with because of the way things are in the United States. There's really only there's almost only one institution, um, so if it's captured, very dangerous. So uh, looking at our at our time, I think we should take take a few minutes to talk about. Um, where we think this ideology is coming from, why it's got got the power that it has, and then say a little bit about um, combating it. Yeah, we should talk about how the paper combats it in particular, because I yeah I think the, yeah the paper really drops the ball in important ways. Um, yeah. yeah. So did did you want to say something about where it's coming from? Yeah. Sure. I mean, we've said some about what kind of gives it basic plausibility is like there's there's re really such a thing as racism and discrimination more in the past and there's re reason to think that it's not gone and there's elements of it that still remain so that gives some plausibility to the idea that like we need to find out where there's racism and and fight it but one thing that's like worth identifying is um that's an argument for doing the type of thing we were talking about earlier, like doing an actual study on whether there's racism and trying to identify ways of, that you can uh, remove or reduce bias in these institutions or these practices. It's not an argument for the more radical version of this ideology, for this idea that like there's an equivalence between science and other ways of knowing in quotes and and uh, decolonizing science and having these diversity statements and all this other and racial quotas, which we didn't talk about much, but that's an element here too, is there's this idea that if you're, you're writing a paper, uh, you need to cite in like in your citations, you need to cite a certain number of people who are non-white, which is just crazy that the idea that you're going to choose your citations based not on how good the study is, but based on the, the race of the author. But um, so I think there's a, there's a couple of different dynamics here in the, what has made this broader movement more successful. And Mike, when we were talking about it the other day in preparation for this, like, uh, you brought up this distinction between the advocates of these ideas, the people who are really like promoting the theory and the, the, the more radical versions of these ideas versus the kind of the people who are not the originators who sort of adopt these things, go along with these diversity statements, just they're, they're willing to sort of go along to get along. They're kind of second-handed in the, the way that Ayn Rand uses the term. Um, I think there's, there's, there are differences uh, to get into between what motivates yeah. each one of those groups. 
Now here, I mean, that's, that's uh, um, I think an important distinction to keep in mind. Here it's a little more complicated because the, the um, second handers we're talking about are people with PhDs. So they're, like they're practicing scientists, they're editors of journals. So these are highly intelligent people who are supposed to be very thoughtful. Um, and they're, they're, you know, so what are they? Are they, are they um, kind of just going along to get along or are they advocate? They're not originators. There's, I think of them as kind of in, in between. Um, and um, one of the, something that's going on here um, that that is giving a, a like a, a, it's like a wedge for the, um, the social justice view of science. And it is, there's a lot of scientists who, even though they might do really good work when they talk about science like um as you know turning back on themselves and just thinking about the practice they're engaged in they're pretty bad they don't understand what they're doing so i i mentioned earlier the editorial in science magazine and i, I want to read a quote from it's written by uh Holden thorpe one of the editors he says um, talking about the the type of person who um, thinks science is uh, objective. The science speaks for itself is usually the mantra in this camp, but the history and philosophy of science argue strongly to the contrary. For example, Charles Darwin made major contributions to the most important idea in biology, but his book, The Descent of Man, contained many incorrect assertions about race and gender. It reflected his adherence to pre uh, prevalent social ideas of his time. Thankfully, evolution didn't become no knowledge the day Darwin proposed it, and it was refined over the decades by many points of view. So that last sentence strikes me as really strange. Evolution didn't become Dar knowledge the day Darwin proposed it. I mean, evolution was knowledge the day Darwin had the evidence for it in his mind, and it becomes knowledge to anybody who's he communicates it to who can understand the evidence in his favor. There's a very um, uh, social conception of, of, of knowledge here um, that I think it, it is a lot of um, people in the sciences have bought into. Like, what makes something knowledge? Well, it, it goes through this this kind of social system, and when that system spits it out at the other end, now it, now it's knowledge. It's like this, this social system's making it knowledge. Um, and if you have that kind of view, uh, so you tie up your epistemology of science inappropriately with the, um, like the institutional practice of, of science, then it's a, a lot more plausible that, yeah, if that, if that institution has racism in it somewhere, doesn't that make its outputs in some way racist? So isn't there something to the idea that science and knowledge can be racist and that that's it's hard you know it's hard to tell how many people think that way um you'd have to do some real sociology of science to see how prevalent that that kind of point of view is 
Um, but I think if you if you think that way, um, you're going to be more prone to think of um, having a kind of uh, one is you'll you'll think it what I just said you'll think it plausible that there could be racist the outputs of the system can be racist, but also you're going to have I think a, a kind of authoritarian view of science, um, which goes along well with the social justice claims about knowledge and power that claims to truth or claims to power. Well, like, yeah, isn't that true? We're sciences. We have the authority. We all get together. We have a consensus and now everybody just has to go along with it. Um, so part of the reason that these uh, um, really bad ideas are starting to, to come in and be mouthed by people actually in the sciences, I think is just a deterioration of the profession's own understanding of what it's doing that's good and that's not something so just to get back to the paper a little bit that the defensive merit paper that's not something you really get from the paper that that's part of the problem um, they just see it as a battle there's two camps of philosophy and there's the bad guys and there's our camp and we just kind of have to battle it out there's no grappling one of the things i don't like about there's no grappling with why do people find the bad guys plausible, like not just people, but some of the sm smartest, most systematic thinkers in the in the world are kind of starting to entertain this in 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 potentially destructive ways. Why is that? It's not something they're concerned with. Yeah, in fact, I think it's a little worse than that. In that they're they're not entirely clear about their own view of science, and they end up at one point in the paper sort of espousing something that has some similarities to the view you were describing. That is, they're trying to say something and they're not clear about what they're saying. I think, I think they're trying to say that, uh, they do say that scientific truth is determined by its correspondence with reality. So that's, that's right. And then they say, quote, evaluating the quality of that evidence or the validity of the inferential processes is itself a social process, unquote. Okay, that's that's fine so far because it's about evaluating the quality of evidence and people collaborating to do that. But then they say this a little bit later from there. They say, scientific truths are determined by an ongoing social process that includes discussion, debate, and criticism until a broad consensus is reached and which can be challenged by new evidence and arguments. This is... It's at least not clear uh, that they're distinguishing between a process of evaluating scientific claims and a process of uh, arriving at truth. Because the idea that like, scientific truths are determined by a social process, what what do you mean by that? And and if you're going to really take on uh, a worldview that's being presented to you, that's saying certain things about truth that we think are really wrong. And I think the, the authors of the merit and science paper also really disagree with, you need to be clear about these things and about what your own view is that you're gonna defend. So I, I said at the beginning that I thought this was a bad paper. And I, I wanna just take a minute to just, um, just say why I think that. So there's there's what, what we've already said about it's not, um, saying it's it's 
so there's things where it's wrong or just we disagree with it on the philosophy some of the philosophy of science issues it buys into some of the or it shares premises with um some of the uh dei um and and critical uh theory takes on science um but even apart from that i think it's not even good on its like its own terms so it's a defense of merit in science. And I don't know exactly what they think merit is or who they're defending it from. It, they're like, they'll say a name, we're defending it from this, but like, what's the criticism of merit in science? Like what's, what's the view? So I looked at some of the, um, some of the material that they're supposedly um, kind of like reacting to the, this um, National Academies of Science paper. And the, the thing they quote at, in, in the Defense of Merit paper isn't really an accurate um, description of what uh, the, the National Academy of Science is concerned with concerning merit. National Academy of Science isn't concerned with what is meritorious science. They're concerned more with like, what concept of merit is playing into doctoral admissions or job um, that like job hiring practices and what they like. So if you think of, if you think you're talking about what is meritorious or quality scientific research and you think, and somebody says, Oh, that's socially constructed. Yeah. You should react negatively to that. But if what somebody's really saying is, the standards of admissions to doctoral programs are culture. This is a direct quote are culturally constructed over time within disciplinary communities that have been mostly non-Hispanic white and mostly male. Thus the metrics of merit and excellence that institutions privilege in admission admissions reproduce cohorts of students who resemble what came before. And that's absolutely true. Um, there's uh, you know, if you've been in academia, it's there's certain type of people, um, who are, uh, they come from very expensive, mostly white private schools. They go to Ivy league schools for their undergraduates. Uh, they get Ivy league PhDs and then they get jobs at, you know, the, the top places. And there's like, you talk to them and they're no smarter than anybody else. They're no, it's, well, what's going on here? Why is, why do they get all the good job? And it's because there's this kind of standards of, of prestige. Uh, institutional prestige and like um, you have the right people writing you letters of recommendation. That's all part of the doctoral admissions process. That's all part of like not on paper part of the process, but everybody who's been involved in it recognizes that um, admissions and jobs, it's sort of like 40% mm, like, are you good at this? And the rest is kind of some of it's to chance and some of it's to just like who you know. Um, so yeah, there's all kind of questions that that you could raise about how those how those standards work and what constitutes merit and then to the extent that this paper that the in defense of merit paper does say something about about merit even though it's not really well defined it doesn't address any of that kind of concern because if you say well um hiring uh, or doctoral admissions should be based entirely on let's say where you get published or how many publications you have or some metric of citation, like you get your paper gets cited. So there's numbers to measure how 
how influential papers are. Um, that doesn't answer any of the questions that these skeptics have raised. Um, for example, it, it was known to me, I had, I had a friend who had a prominent um, uh, advisors in philosophy, prominent ad named advisor who edited one of the top journals in philosophy. And it was just known amongst his students that they all got one free one in the, in the top journal. <laughs> so, I mean, it doesn't, it's, it's still, it, and you can imagine that, you know, in, uh, in different versions of that multiplied across um, disciplines. It's, it can't just be philosophy. So you could raise all these questions about what exactly are the standards for admissions? You could just raise them again for publication standards and who gets what grants. So there's real questions to ask about this. And some of them have to have to do with um, uh, n n just the demographic that everybody's everybody's male. So it gets the, you get the impression that this is like a boys club and that alienates certain people. And we, but we want the best scientists, some of whom will be women. So can we do something that even though everybody now is a bunch of guys like can we make this seem not a boys like a boys club like that's a perfectly legitimate thing to talk about they're they're not even acknowledging those kind of um concerns so there's there's a uh, a real um uh, uh straw man feel to the um the the defense of merit like who are we defending against we don't really get a good glimpse of their like thoughtful reasons we get a glimpse of like this sort of Twitter, Twitter type reasons. Um, so yeah, so that's that's what I was getting at at the beginning of our discussion when I said I didn't think this paper was a good defense of, well, a good defense of anything because it's not really clear what they mean by, by merit. Yeah, yeah, I wanna pick up on that and say, say something because I think what you're saying is relevant to one of the super chat questions we've gotten and then also kind of go into the kind of broader point of what what do we think this debate needs? Uh, so just we got a super chat question about what is currently being cited as racism in universities? Why is DEI necessary? So th thank you for the uh, super chat donation, by the way. Um, I think that like what Mike is bringing up is that there are all sorts of like cases where people experience something that's a, a process that's not fair that's that has biases that's that's determined maybe by who you know or by some person's kind of like weird personal preference and there there's an argument that i i don't think we should just dismiss out of hand that those sorts of personal biases uh can add up in the cumulative effect to being a uh having a racial effect in other words that if it's about who you know and who you know, like who who knows people is more white people than it is non-white people. That's going to have an effect in the aggregate. Um, however, I think one of the things we need to distinguish is there's this question: Is there racism in universities? And I think if if the answer is like, is there anyone in universities who's ever done anything racist? The answer is definitely yes. Uh, if the if the question is more like is there a significant prevalence of racism in universities that has a, this really big and harmful effect? I think my answer is, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like and that you'd have to seriously study that. But separate that from the question of why is DEI necessary? Well, it, I mean, if the idea is DEI in this critical social justice way, that's not a real solution to even if there's real racism to say we're gonna now have 
racial quotas and we're going to decolonize the curriculum and start teaching uh, mythology. And like, that's not, a, that's not a real solution. Even if there's a lot of racism, that would not be a real solution to it. So that's one of the things that you have to really get clear on and differentiate those questions, which I think that the paper uh, gestures at differentiating, but doesn't really do enough for this to be credible as a defense of merit against these criticisms. And then I, well, I think the broader point, or do you want to say something before I go to the broader point? Yeah. Uh, well, I was, I was, one of the things that we've said a couple of times is that, um, at least in, in our view that the, the rat, the, when we're thinking about like the ideology here, the, the critical social justice epistemology, the critical race, that really what it's, what it's really about is, um, like Sam was saying earlier, the Tuhi, uh, the Tuhi strategy, um, putting, putting like good work, like Newton on par with the tribal superstitions, just one reason to think this, that that's what's going on here. Sam, what's the name of that school in New York? Uh, the Thomas Jefferson, is it the, the technical school that is very difficult to get into? Um, it's a high school, um, I'm blanking on the name, but they've been in the news recently for having removed certain kind of standardized tests for admissions. And one of the most desirable schools to be admitted to for if you're into science and um, you're a gifted kid and it's a New York public school. Um, and they removed that, uh, this um, kind of standardized admissions test because they didn't like the demographics of who was being admitted. It was a big chunk of Asian kids and white kids. And then, you know, a small amount of, of people outside, outside of those groups. Um, and they, they re removed that in, in favor of the, uh, a different um, system that would produce some more uh, rac racial demographic equity. And there's also a, a, a similar movement to remove SATs and GREs from uh, GREs for graduate school for, from admissions. And that kind of standardized testing, I mean, if you think of it, if you have no connections, you don't come from a, 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 a remarkable pub, uh, private school, um, you don't know the big shot professors, um, or you, you, know, you're you come out of community college or your local university, what's the one thing you can do to really overcome that? Like if you get a crazy good SAT or GRE scores, you're at least gonna get noticed in the admissions process. Um, and there's more than a few people who, they're accomplished scientists, they're accomplished researchers, whatever, that they come from a background like, yeah, if it weren't for the SATs, I would have never got into Princeton because I just came from, you know, some junky public school in the, if, in, in the city. Um, and so that nobody cared about the grades don't mean anything from that school and nobody is interested in my teacher's right letter recommendations, but I got crazy good SATs. So if you want a system where you're making sure you're getting all the really good, talented people. Like some, some of that should be something like an, like a, a standardized test. At least that that's, it strikes me as the most um, one of the one of the reasonable ways to make sure there's no discrimination in, in admissions, having a kind of a blind form of evaluation. 
And they're, they're against those kind of things. They're against the very things that might help an, a, a, a person of exceptional ability from a marginalized group is, is an SAT score or a GRE score or some, some, maybe some superior alternative. Um, but instead, what they'll replace it with is racial quotas. So maybe that, that person of ability will get captured by that. Maybe not. It's more of a lottery, right? If you take, if you want X percent of um, Harvard to be uh, African American, and they don't use any kind of SAT or standardized test score, and you're that gifted person, you're that exceptional person. Like, do you get part? Do you win the lottery? Essentially, um, maybe, maybe, probably not. But had you had the SATs, maybe you would probably would have gotten it. So. Um, yeah. So we're, I think we're kind of at time. Do we, do we want to take the other um, super um, chat question? I think we can take that briefly. I, I think we should say something about what, um, I think we, I think we need to say something about what is needed to improve the situation. We can make this, we can make this point briefly, I think, but that um, what comes across to me when I read the, the merit in science paper is that uh, they're trying to defend this concept of merit. They don't do a very good job of it. They don't, do, they don't do a very good job of articulating what it is, what it means, what it what it looks like in practice, how it looks in the difficult situations. They gesture in the direction of some of these things, but and they don't, as Mike was pointing out, really get into the arguments against it and really give a give a strong response to those arguments. And, and I think there's something broader here that is. Um, that's going on and is part of the picture of how this ideology has gotten so much power, the critical social justice ideology has gotten so much power in the sciences and, and what, why scientists are struggling to respond to it. And, and it's the issue of philosophy, that, you, that philosophy is needed in order to really support the foundations of science, the, the methods, the, the practices, the ways in which science is actually used to, to gain knowledge. And uh, Ayn Rand wrote some about this. And if, if we put up the first quote that we have from her, uh, you can see her, her statement of this issue, which is from her essay, For the New Intellectual. Uh, she's talking about the role of intellectuals versus uh, the role of scientists and how, how they are, how scientists need intellectuals. So she says, the intellectual's specific professions are in the field of the sciences that study man, the so-called humanities. But for that very reason, his influence extends to all other professions. Those who deal with the sciences studying nature have to rely on the intellectual for philosophical guidance and information, for moral values, for social theories, for political premises, for psychological tenets, and above all, for the principles of epistemology that crucial branch of philosophy which studies man's means of knowledge and makes all other sciences possible." End quote. And I think really the, the issues that this paper is trying to get into about what is the merit of a scientific finding, how do you determine what's a good finding, who's a skilled scientist, these are epistemological questions that, uh, that philosophy really informs. And, and then there's another um, point that Ayn Rand made often, and I think 
if we put up the second quote, we can see one place where she made this point uh, in an essay called From the Horse's Mouth. Uh, her point is that there's uh, a real, she was making this point in the, I think in the 1970s in this essay, but I think it's it's very still very much true today that there's a, a real disparity between the, the sciences, the state of things in the sciences, how rational those fields are, versus the state of things in philosophy and the humanities. Uh, here's what Ayn Rand wrote. She said, now observe the breach between the physical sciences and the humanities. Although the progress of, of theoretical science is slowing down, by reason of a flawed epistemology, among other things, the momentum of the Aristotelian past is so great that science is still moving forward while the humanities are bankrupt. Spatially, science is reaching beyond the solar system, while temporally, the humanities are sliding back into the primeval ooze. Science is landing men on the moon and monitoring radio emissions from other galaxies while astrology is the growing fashion here on earth, while courses in astrology and black magic are given in colleges, while horoscopes are sent galloping over the airwaves of a great scientific achievement, television, end quote. And that really rings with a lot of the things that we talked about today to me. I mean, the stuff about decolonizing science and quotes, bringing in uh, indigenous tribal myths and teaching those on a par with science, I mean, that's that's sort of like the, the teaching of astrology and black magic in colleges. And it's it, that these these theories, this critical social justice ideology, it's coming out of the humanities, uh, which is a, a, an area of knowledge that Ayn Rand was arguing. And I think she's quite right about this, that is was really lagging behind the sciences. It was was regressing into irrationality. Uh, even as the sciences have sort of continued to be better, be more objective, be more rational. And, uh, but if you, if you think back to the previous quote, her point that science needs philosophy and needs the humanities to uh, give it its, its moral values, its social theories, its principles of epistemology above all, I think the picture that you get is, well, what is, what is the state of the sciences if the humanities collapse into irrationality? I think it's that the sciences, if they've, uh, you know, institutionalized some good practices and good policies and good and good ideas, it can keep going for a while, but without sort of the philosophical foundation that it needs, once it comes under attack from an ideology like critical social justice, that's really striking at the root of uh, the foundations of science in, in its epistemology and its morality, uh, without philosophy, without rational philosophy, uh, science, science is kind of left defenseless or left with, I think, what we consider weak and inadequate sort of defenses of the type that we saw in the, in the paper that we talked about today. Yeah, it's, it's to echo that in all of the criticisms I saw, I read of the in defense of science paper, um, it, they mixed in um, the, the legitimate criticisms they had, I think were playing off of that. That is that these, that the, that the authors of these papers don't have a, like, they don't have a clear conception of what the sciences are and they can't even define a concept like merit. So it just now those are legitimate criticisms, but then 
they'll go on to just, okay, so that we could just dismiss the whole concern with, um, with the social justice epistemology, because these, you know, these critics of it are, are, aren't, aren't very good. Um, so there's a real way in which it's, uh, it's not just um, the failure of philosophy isn't just a cause of the uh, critical social justice epistemology making its way into the sciences, but also the, the critics of that being unable to defend um, to defend uh, science um, in, in, in response. And it's, it's interesting that the, um, one of the another one of the criticisms of this paper is that the authors seem to be under the misimpression that they themselves don't have some kind of ide ideology or philosophy that they're pushing to. They think they're, they're um, uh, theory, new, you know, philosophically neutral empiricists or something, but they have their own. I mean, the conception of science they have is Pitarian. Um, so there's a, we could do a whole other podcast on, on the uh, failure of philosophy of science to guide science in the 20th century. Yeah, I think we're over time. Do we, yeah. Do we want to take those two super chats real quick? Yeah, let, let's, let's do this quickly. So, yeah. so there's one that asked us, uh, if science is racist, then why does the claim 97% of scientists agree that climate change is a major threat taken seriously? So I think in other words, the question is, if there's people who think that science is racist, uh, just as a discipline, as a methodology, why do people take seriously like certain claims about what scientists believe? And I think it, these are of the type of like the trust the science kind of mm -hmm. claims. And Mike, let me know if you, what you think about this, but, but I think um, the people who very seriously believe that science as a methodology is racist, are different people from the people who very ardently want to trust the science. Even though they're both sort of people who are on the political left, generally speaking, I think the people who ardently believe that science as a discipline is racist are the type of people who want to go, go back into like tribal mythology beliefs about the world or something like that. Now, there are people, I think, who believe both of these things, but don't don't take one or both of them fully seriously. Like there are people who believe in sort of the more moderate version of the more kind of moderate inconsistent version of the science is racist view who also like say we should trust the science. And I think there it's, they take the science is racist thing to be something more about the issues of like, is there discrimination in academia? And then say that doesn't necessarily. Well, I've got I've got this scientific finding that does. There's not necessarily a conflict. Yeah. In in this case, like if you're thinking about climate science, um, there there's also reasons why they wouldn't want to because climate change is being used as another like look who's causing climate change. Well, it's mostly the white West and. Um, it's harming indigenous groups and, um, and all this other, so it's climate science is itself being used as a, um, uh, uh, further evidence of the, of the evil of the West, like, like climate change. Um, so there's, there's reasons why they wouldn't want to do that. Just, you know, it might be inconsistent, but there's a, there's a, there's a kind of motivational logic, uh, there to it. I, I, 
think we should clarify. I don't really think people are saying any any scientific theory is racist. They're saying the practice itself has racism in it. So you'll see it manifest in some theories, but not depending if it's a theory about a human being, like if it's a theory about humans, human biology, um, medicine, uh, the, that example about the um, measuring device that couldn't read through dark skin, like those are the thing. Those are where you're really going to see, like, yeah, there's racism here. There's some kind of racism in the content, um, but when it's you know about neutrons or climate or something like that's human cause, but the climate is just the climate. It's not. It. So um, I think that's probably why you see less of it there. Like I haven't seen any mm, physics like the theory is racist. Um, I might. I, I think I've seen some things about the practice is but not, not the actual content of the theory. So um, the other question we have is, why don't people see that affirmative, uh, that affirmative action is racist? Well, if you, if you by, by um, people, you mean the people who are uh, on the more social justice side, um, I don't, you have to keep in mind that their view of racism is probably different from yours. So they see racism as um, discrimination plus power is a typical way to they talk about it. Um, so that's why you hear people say, well, uh, um, black people can't be racist, say, right? Because white people have the power, black people don't. So any kind of racial prejudice is, there's a power difference and that's the difference between racism and just prejudice. Um, so why don't they see affirmative action as racist? Because they see that as justified discrimination. Yeah. And I'll add that this is, this is another area where philosophy is really beneficial to answer arguments like this. Because if you just think like, here's my definition of racism and here's your definition and like, okay, it's just different definitions. How can we know who's right? Uh, if you have a rational philosophy, you can start to get clear about like what concepts are are valid, what concepts aren't valid, what's the right definition for these. And Ayn Rand has an essay on racism that I think brings a lot of insight to like, what is the actual phenomenon here and how can we understand it? That would bring a lot of clarity to this question of what is and isn't racist. Okay, thank you uh, for the super chat questions. We appreciate yeah. it. Uh, yes, thank you everybody. Um, we should go ahead and wrap up now. Um, so thanks for watching today. Um, what, sorry, what is the, the first slide that we have? Here we go. Okay, um, next week, yes, our next week's episode is a preview of Ocon 2023. We'll uh, hear about some of the, the topics that you'll hear about if you come to Ocon or register to, uh, to view it online. So that should be exciting. Um, also, as always, we appreciate it if you subscribe to us uh, on YouTube, uh, click the bell to get notifications, and also on other social media, Facebook, et cetera, uh, liking and sharing episodes uh, always helps bring, bring more attention to this. So if you liked what you heard, uh, we appreciate it if you do that. Um, you can also always email us if you have feedback or questions or ideas for other topics we can cover on this podcast. Uh, you can write to us at newideal at einrand.org. 
Uh, we read all the messages sent here. We respond to many of them as well. All right, that's it. Thank you for watching, everybody. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Sam. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.